0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. The Plague of the Reanimated, a tale of survival in the South African jungle. In the remote wilderness of South Africa, there was a small tribe that had been living for generations in isolation. They had their own unique traditions and beliefs, and outsiders were rarely welcomed into their community. But one day, a group of tourists stumbled upon the tribe's territory, unaware of the danger that lay ahead. The tourists had come to South Africa to explore the natural beauty of the region and to learn about the local culture. They had heard about the small tribe that lived deep in the jungle, and they were curious to see how they lived. However, they had no idea that the tribe was plagued by a strange and deadly disease that had been ravaging their community for years. As the tourists ventured deeper into the jungle, they began to notice strange behavior from the members of the tribe. They were acting restless and anxious, and their eyes seemed to glaze over with a vacant stare. Suddenly, one of the tribe members lunged at one of the tourists, his body contorting in an unnatural way. It wasn't until they were attacked by a swarm of small flies That they realized the true horror of what was happening the flies were laying eggs in the bodies of the dead reanimating them and causing them to become aggressive and violent the disease was spreading rapidly infecting more and more of the tribe members and turning them into mindless zombies the tourists tried to escape but they found themselves surrounded by the infected tribe members they were chased through the jungle with only one of them managing to evade the pursuing zombies. As he ran, he heard the buzzing of the flies and the moans of the infected behind him. Finally, he stumbled upon a small village on the outskirts of the jungle. The villagers welcomed him with open arms and listened to his harrowing tale. They had heard rumors of the strange disease that was spreading in the jungle, but they had never encountered it firsthand. Determined to help the small tribe, the villagers organized a mission to find a cure for the disease. They gathered together the most knowledgeable healers and shamans from the region and set out into the jungle to find the source of the infection. After weeks of searching, they finally discovered a small pond deep in the heart of the jungle. The water was teeming with the small flies, each one carrying the deadly disease. Using their knowledge of herbal medicine, the healers created a powerful tonic that would neutralize the effects of the disease and eradicate the flies toxins, poisons, a combination of mushrooms, deep planted roots combined together to create that tonic and fundamentally destroy the flies. The villagers returned to the small tribe and began administering the tonic to the infected members. Slowly but surely, the disease began to recede and the tribe members returned to their normal selves. The small tribe was saved and the tourists who had stumbled upon their territory were able to return home safely once more. But the memory of the strange disease and the zombie-like creatures that had chased them through the jungle would haunt the tourists for the rest of their lives. They knew that they had been lucky to escape with their lives, and they would never forget the danger that lurked in the wilderness of South Africa. And so ends the plague of the reanimated, the tale of survival within the South African jungle. The Bottled Water Survivor Day One My name is Jack, and I live in a small town in Maine called Riverdale. Yesterday we learned that our water supply had been poisoned, and since then strange things have been happening. People are gaining unnatural telepathic abilities and it's driving them insane. It's like something out of the horror movie. I'm one of the lucky ones though. I only drink bottled water, so I haven't been affected. yet. Day 2 The situation is getting worse. People are walking around like zombies, staring off into space or muttering to themselves. They're not acting like themselves. I'm beginning to worry that I might be the only one left who is still sane. I can hear their thoughts, their fears, their desires. It's overwhelming. I'm trying to stay focused and not let their madness infect me but it's becoming increasingly difficult. Day 3 i barricaded myself in my house. The streets are filled with people, all lost in their own thoughts. It's like a nightmare. I can hear them calling out to me, trying to lure me out. But I know better. I know that if I go out there, I'll be lost too. I'm rationing my bottled water, but I don't know how long it will last. I'm starting to feel like I'm in prison. Day 4 I had a dream last night. In the dream, I was walking down the street, and everyone was staring at me. I could hear their thoughts, but they were all the same. Join us, they said. Join us and be free. But I knew that their freedom was just an illusion, and if I joined them, I would be lost forever. When I woke up, I felt like I'd been awake all night. I don't know how much longer I can hold out. Day 5 I've been hearing a voice in my head. It's not like the other voices. It's clear, and it feels different. I don't know how to describe it, but it tells me things. Things that I need to know. It's telling me that there's a way to stop this. A way to reverse the effect of the poison. I don't know if I should trust it, but I don't have any other choice. Day 6 I followed the voices' instructions. I gathered some materials and mixed them together, and then drank the concoction. It tasted terrible, but I could feel it working. The voices in my head started to fade away, and the madness around me began to clear. I don't know how long it would last, but for now, I feel like I have a chance. Day 7 I ventured outside today. The streets were still empty, but the silence was comforting. I could hear my own thoughts again, and it was like a breath of fresh air. I don't know what will happen to the others, but for now I'm safe. I don't know how I'll ever be able to trust the water supply again, but I'm grateful to be alive. Epilogue. It's been months since the water supply was poisoned. The government sent in a team to clean it up and make sure it never happens again. The town is slowly rebuilding, but there are still reminders of what happened some people didn't make it and others are still lost in their own minds but i'm one of the lucky ones i survived and i'll never take my sanity for granted again monolith's curse tales of survival in a town of twisted monsters chapter one the monolith the mining town of westfield had been a place of hard work and rough living for generations. The people of town were proud of their mining heritage and they worked tirelessly to extract the precious resources from the earth. One day, while digging in a particularly deep mine, the workers came across a strange monolith buried deep underground. The workers were curious and excited by this strange discovery, but they had no idea what they were unleashing. As they struck the monolith, the ground shook and a loud rumble echoed throughout the mine. The monolith began to glow with a dark energy and chaos erupted. The dark magic within the monolith twisted and contorted the bodies of the workers, turning them into twisted and mangled monsters controlled by the dark magic itself. The monsters began to spread throughout the town, infecting and transforming the people of Westfield only a handful of people managed to escape the epicenter of the chaos. Among them was a man named Jack, who had been working in the mine when the monolith was uncovered. He had barely managed to escape with his life, and he now found himself alone in a town of twisted monsters. Jack wandered the street of Westfield, trying to find a way to break the hold of the dark magic of the town. He soon realized that the only way to do this was to destroy the monolith. However, the dark magic was powerful, and Jack knew that he could not do it alone. He searched for other survivors, but the town was empty except for the twisted monsters that roamed the streets. As he searched, Jack encountered other survivors who had managed to escape the town before the chaos erupted. Together, they devised a plan to destroy the monolith and break the hold of the dark magic on the town. Their plan was dangerous and uncertain, but they knew that it was their only hope. They armed themselves and set out to face the twisted monsters and destroy the source of the dark magic. When the chaos erupted in Westfield, only a handful of people managed to escape the epicenter of the disaster. Those people fled to the town, leaving behind their homes and loved ones never knowing if they would ever be able to return. Among the survivors was a man named Sam. He had been working in the mine when the monolith was uncovered, and he had narrowly escaped with his life. Sam was haunted by the memory of the twisted monsters that had once been his friends and neighbours, and he knew that try as he might, he could never really return to Westfield as it was. Sam joined forces with other survivors, a man named Jack, and together they built a new life for themselves in a nearby town. They shared stories of their past, of the hard work and rough living in Westfield, and of the chaos that had erupted when the monolith was uncovered. As time went on, the survivors began to feel a pull back to Westfield. Unnatural as it was, they couldn't deny it. They knew that the town was still under the control of the dark magic, and they felt a duty to try to help those who were still trapped beneath and within its grasp. Sam and the other survivors banded together, determined to find a way to break the hold of the dark magic and save their former friends and neighbors. They scoured the nearby towns for information and supplies, hoping to find a way to destroy the source of the dark magic. Their journey was long and difficult, filled with danger and uncertainty. They faced twisted monsters at every turn and they were never sure who they could trust. But despite the challenges, the survivors never gave up. They knew that they were the only hope for the people of Westfield and they were determined to do whatever it took to save them. Will they reclaim the town? Will they rebuild what was lost? Can they save those that were twisted by the monolith? Maybe we'll find out. Maybe in future episodes of The Monolith's Curse, Tales of Survival in a Town of Twisted Monsters. A good heart these days is hard to find. Alley. Adam says the best houses for trick-or-treating are the big ones. He says it's because people with big houses are rich and rich people shell out the good candy. Sometimes they even give you the full size bars if you get there before they run out. I don't agree, but I don't argue because he's older, and he says that means I'm supposed to mind him. I don't like the big houses because they make me feel small. Normally being small on Halloween is good because people think you're cute and give you lots of compliments and candy, but the big houses make me feel small on the inside. We went to one house last year, or no, a few years ago, and the house was brand new. You could still smell the wood dust and fresh paint hovering around it. It was as big as five normal houses, as big as 20 of our little trailers. We went up the shiny stone steps, and when I looked back, I thought I could see muddy track on the slate left by my worn-out sneakers. When the big house lady opened the door, her eyes gobbled us up, and I swear I saw her nose wrinkle up for a second, like we stank. There were a few other kids here too, and she smiled at them and gave them big fistfuls of candy. When the other kids pushed past us down the steps, screeching into the warm October night, she looked at us and smiled tightly, her eyes lingering on the fuzzy grey ears that sat lopsided on my head. What a cute little puppy you make, she said, purposely ignoring Adam's horrific zombie mask. I'm a werewolf, I said, pitching our dad's old flannel shirt. I had spent hours ripping up to give the impression that I had burst out of my human form to become the deadly werebeast that stood before her. Oh I see, very scary, she said. She sounded disappointed. She dropped a meagre sprinkle of candies into my plastic bag and then turned and walked back into the warm yellow light of her house. The heavy door closed and I heard the lock go, clunk Adam's hormonal teenage pride walked him around the side of their house, to the manicured bushes to unleash his revenge through a steady stream of pee. He must have really had to go because he was gone for a while, and I got bored. I walked back down the steps and looked around for all the other excited children and their costumes, bought or homemade depending on their zip code, that sought to imitate abominable and unspeakable monsters, but at that moment no one could be found. The street was empty, and all but two houses had turned off their orange twinkle lights and packed in their plastic skeletons, apparently content that the spirits of Samhain had been properly scared off. Yeah, I know a lot about the origin of Halloween. Jonathan is literally obsessed with all that stuff. It's all he talks about. Sometimes I think he's talking to me, but usually he's just talking to himself, or the camcorder. Sometimes he forgets I'm here, which is better. When he really sees me, he stares at me in a weird way that makes me feel small again even though I'm much bigger now than I was when he found me. My bed bars kind of squeeze against me when I sleep and I can't stretch out my legs. I wish Adam had just listened to me when I said I didn't want to go to that neighborhood. I wish he hadn't left me alone. I have so many wishes that I put them in a glowing jelly jar in my mind so I won't forget them. Sometimes when I'm scared, I close my eyes and watch them float around in there like frantic little bugs trying to escape. Next chapter, Kayla. I'm so sorry. Just give me a second. I have another bag of candy in the cupboard. Come in and wait in the kitchen and I'll grab it, he said. Mummy, I wouldn't have gone in if I were alone. We thought it was safe because we were together. Abs and I always carry our little pocket knives when we're out, but we've never had to use them. When guys are creepy, we just flip them off and that usually does the trick. I know you say that's unladylike, but those creeps deserve it. You didn't know this, but sometimes on Saturdays, we would sit on Abby's stoop because it's right on the main road where the red light is. And when old dudes would stop there waiting for the light to change, some of them would whistle and say stuff to us. And we would say, F you! And only one time did a guy get mad and make to pull into the driveway. But before he could even pull all the way in, Ab screamed for her dad and he came out from around the side of the house hey! to see what the matter was. And the guy sped off. <laughs> After that... We said we weren't going to do it anymore, and we didn't. I didn't have my knife on me that night because my cat costume didn't have any pockets. But Abbs had the Michael Myers jumpsuit on so she had hers. But she just couldn't get it out in time. We ended up in front of this place because Abbs said she heard the old shack had really scary decorations, and that the guy was kind of weird, and she was curious. And I know you always say, Abby Lynn is trouble, because you're always coming up with kooky ideas. But there were lots of other kids around, and when he said we should come in and wait for the candy, it wasn't just her fault. I agreed to it too. If you ever read this, please don't be mad at her. She's my best friend, and she fights to keep me safe. He treats her worse than me. She antagonizes him, so he'll focus on her more. So don't be mad at Abby, please. I love you, mummy. Next chapter, Abby Lynn. You are a pathetic loser, Jonathan. You're disgusting, and you're fucking insane. I hope you read this and never forget it. You'll never have a real friend. No one would ever willingly want to be around you. You smell like old socks and your breath stinks. I hope you die. Journal Note. Royce Pennsylvania Tribune, October 31st, 2016. Today marks the five-year anniversary of the disappearance of Allison Parker, the 13-year-old daughter of Samuel and Melissa Parker, lifelong residents of Royceford, Pennsylvania. Since Allison's disappearance on the Halloween night 2012, the family has never given up hope that their daughter will someday be found. She is the most kind, funny, and intelligent girl in the whole world, and we know that she's out there somewhere. Alison's father stated when last interviewed in the days leading up to the five year anniversary. Alison's mother simply stated, We will never give up hope. Alison's brother, Adam Parker, has never agreed to be interviewed by the press and this year was no exception. An understandable stance considering that he was the last to see Alison alive on that fateful Halloween evening. Many residents of Royceford do not share the Parker family's optimism about the return of their beloved daughter as Alison's disappearance is but the first of multiple disappearances of young girls over the last five years. The two other missing girls, Abby Lynn McGrath and Kayla Wheaton, were together when they were both reported missing on Halloween night, two years after Alison's disappearance. Many in Royceford fear the worst and suspicions of serial kidnappers have been shared by multiple Royceford residents. I don't let my kids go out on Halloween anymore. And it breaks my heart to deprive them of something that's always been a happy tradition. But I'm not taking any chances. Amanda D'Angelo stated. Another resident who preferred to stay anonymous said, It could be one of us. Someone took those girls and I don't like to think about what they did to them. But it can't be anything good. They say you never really know who a person is. And I think there's a chance it could be someone who's still around. Someone who lives amongst us. Attempts to get a statement from the Royceford Police Department went unanswered, but it's hard to miss the increased presence of police cars on the streets on this chilly Halloween day. Next chapter, Jonathan. Trial 112, Abby Lynn had a bad heart. You could just tell by the way she looked at you. I can tell a great many things by looking into the eyes of a potential friend. Sometimes it turns out they're not your friend at all. Abby Lynn was cruel and cold right from the start. And I should have seen right away that she was uninterested in building our relationship. Some of them seem standoffish at first, but once they see the way of things, they come around. Abby Lynn never came around, and I was really sad when I had to say goodbye to her. I didn't even let my neighbor's dog eat the heart for fear that it would poison him with her sickness. Then who would I feed all the scraps to? It would be a waste. There are other parts of her, though, that I had hoped would work, but still, nothing. Zawin is still but a week away, and I'm certain that the thinning boundaries will allow her spirit to return to the body. I just need to find the last few parts. Dash Jonathan. Trial 113 was a disaster. I'm having nervous spasm in my arms and hands today, and I can't get the stitching right. I have a strong stomach, but the smell is starting to get to me. I hadn't done anything to preserve the bodies before burying them because I had no intention of digging them up again. It wasn't until I read Aunt Adeline's diary that I realized that they could still be useful to me. The other problem is that cutting, stitching, and re-stitching only works with pliable pieces of skin. The skin on the chest is taut and thin, and I can't find a way to fuse the two rib cages without adding on more skin from some other area to bridge them. It will still have to just be Alison's torso. Extremities are easier to mix and match. I'll record here not only my process, but also the story of my dear aunt Adeline's life, based on her diary entries. We are inextricably linked through time, she and I. And it's important that anyone who reads this understands the path that led me here to this momentous experiment. It seemed that Aunt Adeline was tired of being lonely. Solitude had been her only suitor during the blank and barren pages of her life. The year was 1874. The date of the actual ritual has been recorded in her diary, but the number of weeks between Cousin Mary's wedding and that Halloween night is unclear. The writing in her diary turned frenzied. By the beginnings of October, and I'm making my best supposition about the timeline of things. The accuracy of such a thing as timing does not matter as much as her tipping point. We all have one, and the resulting tumble can sometimes beget pleasurable results. But I digress. At 34, Adeline was the only unmarried woman of the small social circle she had grown up in. The rural Royceford dances, which to a worldly person would have seemed like somewhat grim, Country Affairs, were still considered the proper place for young unmarried women to come out in society and find suitable husbands, or rather, it was a place for men, young and old, to pick out a woman to keep. If an acquaintance were put upon to describe Adeline's features, they would probably come up short. From the few photographs that our family saved, I can tell you that she had a long, slender, with a rather attractive, oval-shaped face. The pretty shape of her head is overshadowed, however, by less comely features, like the brown hair pulled back into a severe bun at the nape of her neck, the sparse eyebrows, and the long hawk-like nose. There is nothing wrong with the shape of her brown eyes, but in the photograph they appear heavily lidded, like the eyes of one who is either exhausted or caught mid-blink by the photographer's flash. There doesn't seem to be any sparkle or sheen in them either, Although that could be due to the antique nature of the camera. Overall, there is simply a dullness to her appearance, and from her diary entries alone. It is clear that attracting a mate based on looks has become impossible for her. It is also clear that a bitterness has set in long before the humiliation she endured at her cousin's wedding. There are two mentions of her young There are two mentions of her much younger cousin's nuptials in Adeline's diary. One is mentioned on August 30th, of that same year and it states, Mary and Aunt Celia joined us for tea today and revealed their plans to hold the wedding outdoors in the meadow behind the church. Mother had the puckered look on her face, that means she does not approve, but she had learned to hold her tongue around Aunt Cecilia and grandmother. Aunt Cecilia has always been grandmother's favorite and mother knows it. If she were to contradict her sister or the jubilant bride-to-be in any way, he would get the cold shoulder at the wedding and be quietly shunned for weeks leading up to it. Grandmother can be frosty when she is not unconditionally obeyed. So we sat quietly, nodding our heads. Mary had made a comment about eligible bachelors that would be in attendance and shot me a syrup-sweet smile. She said it in the name of cruelty, of course. Everyone knows I will never marry, and to make mention of it so lightly is an intentional provocation. Teasing smiles and underhanded comments are Mary's modus operandi. Everyone knows it, but no one speaks of it because she's so pretty. Possibly they are afraid of her sharp tongue will turn on them if they stand up to her. I am beyond standing up. I have long since surrendered myself to my position. I will pause there and take up the account tomorrow. My eyes are strained from too much work today, and I need a rest. Trial 114 commences tomorrow. The next chapter dash jonathan trial 114 cecilia was my first attempt at a living dissection i thought if the heart was still beating while i pulled it out the reattachment of the body would take unfortunately she woke up midway through the operation i tried to knock her out but hit her too hard i don't usually work with such small children she was kind though and trusting i think her heart is the key to the ritual success After the first entry detailing the discussion of Mary's wedding plans, there are several entries throughout September that simply state the date, time, and a brief is made on September 30th, presumably after the previously discussed wedding. It states, Cursed Evil Monsters! How I have hoped that my suspicions of their true nature had been unsound! She walked right up to me with that smug look on her face and handed me the bouquet! She was meant to throw it back for the single young women to fret over and I, like always, make sure to be elsewhere so as not to feel any eyes watching me in amusement. That Mary, that little beast, walked right up to me and handed the flowers to me, and she went around grabbing the arms of all the young men and tried to pull them towards me. In mock horror, one of them, Milton Andrews, screamed and tried to run away all the while his ruddy cheeks and twinkling eyes were filled with sadistic mirth. I ran out then, ran all the way home, and I sit here now, writing this, and I vow to never go near them again. They will see no more of me. The next entry on October the 11th of the same year simply says, Dumb Supper, with a lopsided circle drawn around it in a dark charcoal. Aunt Adeline's diary entry on October 31st 1875 reads as such dumb supper in silence i dine with the spirit of my beloved from another place another time from some other his spirit appeared in my doorway and i knew he would take me away from this place once he attached to the deceased body of milton andrews that i had propped up at the table this will be my last entry for i have found bliss When I found Adeline's diary in my mother's old trunk of keepsakes ten years ago, I read it in one sitting. Reading her words was like reading my own thoughts. I know what it is to be an outcast, unwanted, humiliated, and ignored by so-called civilized society. My breaking point came shortly after my first birthday, when my own parents began their cycle of neglect and torture. All I ever wanted was a friend. And when I read Adeline's words, I felt happiness for the first time in my life. For she had found a way, a door to love and joy and companionship. I dedicated many years to research and practice of the dumb supper after that. Before the discovery of the diary, I had tried to force love out of people, but in the end, they had to be put to sleep before being difficult. Now that I know there is no other way, I have made it my life's work to follow her footsteps. Trial 115 It is Halloween night and she is beautiful beyond words. If anything, the rot has only added to her ethereal presence. The old gods will look upon such a divine creature with wistful tears in their legion of gleaming eyes. Conflagrations will be set in devotion to this most pure and sacred being. My hope is that the time has come for such an introduction to take place in our humble town. In the darkness of our cabin, The candlelight shows her shape in flickering vignettes that appear in dappled light. A curved hip here, a squat, strong neck there. Her skin is decorated with flowering purple bruises like the robe of a king. Her face taken from the faces of many, now made whole to perfection, is bloated like a balloon. It is a welcome change from the scrawny rabid faces of the respective girls. My careful stitching only divulges a hint of separation from skin to skin. Preparations for the dumb supper are underway and I've already prepared the seat at the head of the table. The chair has been placed backwards, plastic forks and knives set downward on the table so that their sharp edges faced the abdomen. I've reserved a special place for her and if everything is done just so, they will come back to me in that green and violet skin. They will become one and then we can finally be together, forever friends. And so ends part one of A Good Heart These Days Is Hard To Find, with part two coming in next week. Well mates, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with the first four being the remainder of short stories commissioned by me, thanks to supporters of this show, and boy oh was that a blast. Which story though was your favourite? Humans turning into monsters after striking a monolith, water that made you telepathic, but crazy! What about flies that laid eggs in the dead to bring them back to life, or possibly, possibly, part one of the man looking for a heart, and so much more. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Today's episode was so much fun to record, and stay tuned for next week where I'll finish off part two of A Good Heart These Days is Hard to Find. Nothing beats a great horror mystery, right? I now want to thank those that support me, and first up is the living legend, the old night D titan that stomps and fromps to the rhythm of this podcast, the epic human being that is Matto Star. thank you mate, I've been able to start on my next batch of commission stories thanks to your lovely self, and this time I'm going to pick a different author, as I enjoy sharing the love and support, I'm going to go for a longer single piece story as well. With a key particular premise, which I haven't quite decided on just yet. So we'll see how that goes as well from a narration perspective. I'm going to give the author some spin uh, to say that I want to have more action pieces in it. So from a narration perspective, it'll be more interactive. Either way, the next story heading our way is going to be great as well. Thank you, you god tier supporter you and my pal. Cheers, Mr. Legend. Oh, and I hope you enjoy the email and the recording, mate. Cheers, buddy. And to my white tea warlord, the bedrock supporter that is Leza Kaneza, the spirit energy of this podcast, thank you immensely, man. I've been able to secure some unique tools that cut out breaths and gate the audio just that bit better than before. So I hope you can hear the difference, you legend, because all these improvements are thanks to you and the supporters. I'm using Renegade, which is free, but a couple of their other tools aren't, and for those, I pay for. And with your support, of course, made possible. Cheers. You are one hell of a brilliant fella. Top bloke mate. Cheers. And to my grey forces that kicked down the door of boredom, I'm blessed to have... Chad Warren, Just Heather, Sunshine Days, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by zero. Leah Fasig, Alia Arcane, Paige Kramer, and Jane Gumnick. Thank you, you brilliantly kind people. Lastly, don't forget to leave a review if you get a chance. I really love iTunes ones, so if you've got 10 seconds spare, that goes a long way to help me find more epic people like you to listen to the show. Now, pour your tea, make it nice, ensure your flavouring is precise. Like a story, let it flow. Let the fables and tales take you home. It's these stories that bring us together, and old audio that reminds us of how we've changed. Stay a while, have a listen. And as always, I hope to see you again.